I always have sharp knives in my kitchen drawers. I'm sure you're happy for me. <laughs> but you're wondering what in the world sharp knives have to do with anything. Uh, well, for starters, they're a tribute to my dad. Because uh, years ago, my dad purchased a knife sharpener, and he really loves that little sucker. Loves to use it, volunteers to uh, sharpen people's knives. If he comes over to my house for dinner and he notices the knives are lacking an edge, uh, sometimes he'll just gather them up in a grocery bag, take them home, put an edge on them back at home, and then deliver them next time he comes for dinner. Uh, or he'll just bring the knife sharpener with him. Uh, but there's another reason I share this anecdotal trivia with you. It's got something to do with a Bible verse in Proverbs 27, verse 17, which is kind of a capsule summary of everything we're going to learn in the next few moments from God's Word. Proverbs 27, 17 goes like this. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Uh, it's not uncommon today if you're going to try and sharpen a knife or some other tool that you'll grind it against what's called a whetstone. But in ancient times, they'd often use a wet iron, a piece of, of iron to sharpen the knife. The writer of Proverbs says in the same way, we can impact other people's lives. We can sharpen them. See, there, there's something about life that dulls people's edge. You know, you go through crises, you go through grief, you go through trouble, you go through conflict, you go through big decisions, dilemmas that you're, you're faced with, you lose your edge. The writer of Proverbs says, we have the, the opportunity to come alongside people and to sharpen them, to return the edge, to give them a, a fresh cutting edge. Now, how do we do that? Well, one of the key ways in which we do it is our words. Our, our words can be good, our words can be bad. Our, our words can be helpful, our words can be harmful. Our words can be life-giving, our words can be life-draining. Now, we're in the second week of a series on friendship. Last weekend, we started the series, we, we learned about four basic building blocks for friendship. If you missed it, you can pick it up online. And our teacher was Jesus. By his very example, he demonstrated what those four building blocks are. Now, today we're going to move on. We're, we're going to talk about how our words make or break our friendships. And our teacher is going to be King Solomon, reputed to be the wisest man who ever lived. Okay, and one of the reasons Solomon has this reputation for wisdom is because he made major contributions to an Old Testament book called Proverbs that is just chock full of wisdom. So that's our text for today. If you, you want to follow along, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. You'll find it right after the book of Psalms. So smack dab in the middle of your Bible while you're trying to locate Proverbs. I want to give you just a word of introduction to this book. It's one of five books that Bible scholars refer to as the Old Testament's wisdom literature. Now the purpose of wisdom literature, God gave us wisdom literature to make us wise in the everyday affairs of life. The wisdom books are just full of practical advice about all sorts of everyday topics. Okay, God wants us to be wise. He wants us to be sensible. He wants us to be savvy. Doesn't want us to be foolish. Doesn't want us to be stupid or boneheaded. Okay? And he wants wisdom for us in part because he loves us. But he also wants us to be wise because he hopes that our wisdom points to our relationship with him, the all-wise God. You know, God hopes that people will look at Christ followers and say, whoa, those people are really wise. 
They're really wise parents, you know, or they're really wise bosses. They're really wise money managers. They're, they're really wise conflict resolvers, really wise advice givers, really wise friend makers. You know, maybe it's because of their relationship with God. Maybe I should check out a relationship with God like the one they have. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, that, that would never happen. People don't think things like that. But it happened to me. You know, I, I fully surrendered my life to Christ as a freshman at college. I'd just gotten dumped by my girlfriend. I'll get your attention. And I was looking at my life, and I wasn't, I wasn't happy with who I was. And I looked around, and there were two guys on my campus that it seemed everybody admired, Steve and Kenny. And, and they admired them because these two college students were so wise. Everybody went to them for advice. And I, I, I said, That's, you know, I want to be like Steve and Kenny. And I looked into it, and I discovered you know, it was rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ and an understanding of God's holy word. So, so it happened to me. God wants to make us wise because he loves us and because he wants our, our wisdom to be an attraction to other people, a relationship with him. Now, if you want to know more about how wisdom literature fits in the overall storyline of the Bible, check out my, my short book, Epic. It's just six chapters long. You can pick it up at resource at any of our four campuses, and it traces the Bible storyline beginning to end, and it'll tell you where wisdom literature fits in. So, back to Proverbs, specifically one of these five wisdom literature books, chock full of these short, pithy, colorful pieces of advice, and they cover every topic under the sun, including friendship. You know, like that verse that we began with today, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We have the opportunity to sharpen each other with our words. You know, to say life-giving words are life-draining words. Another proverb, Proverb 18.21, uh, puts it this way. And before we take a look at this proverb, let me just say, I'm going to run a lot of Proverbs references by you. In fact, our tech team told me I produced more PowerPoint slides for this sermon than ever before. Okay? So, so you may not be able to, to turn to all of them, but a lot of these Proverbs, they're zingers. You're going to say, oh, I should memorize that one. So make sure you jot down at least the references, even if you don't turn to all of them. So Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, The tongue, the tongue has the power of life and death. Okay, our words have the power of life and death. They can be life-giving, they can be life-draining. We're going to look at those two categories of words today. There are going to be four kinds of words in each of those two categories. And I'm going to start with life-draining words because I want to make sure that at the end we end on a positive note talking about life-giving words. And j just a word, how to get the most out of this sermon. When you go home, find a three-by-five card from your kitchen drawer and make this list of life-draining words, life-giving words, and the four kinds of words under each, and then post that list someplace where you'll see it every day for the next two weeks. You know, put it on your bathroom mirror, put it on the dashboard of your car, tape it to the screen of your, uh, your laptop, and then begin to scrutinize your conversations with your friends. Do you use life-giving words or do you use life-draining words in your friendships? And determine that with God's help, you're going to put an end to life-draining words and you're going to ramp up life-giving words. Get it? Good. Okay, let's talk about life-draining 
draining words. Proverbs 12, verse 18. Again, these references are going to come flying by you. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. Proverbs 15, verse 4 says, A perverse tongue crushes the spirit. So if you want to avoid piercing or crushing your friends, here are four kinds of words to stay away from. Number one, gossip. Gossip. A 17th century mathematician, inventor, philosopher by the name of Pascal, he had something amusing to say. His observation of gossip was this. If all men knew what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. Say, isn't that true? If we knew what people said about us behind our backs? Gossip, especially if it's discovered, destroys friendship. Proverbs 16, verse 28 says, a gossip separates close friends. Okay, what is gossip? You know, gossip is simply talking about somebody else behind their back. You know, they're not there. You're talking about them. It could be negative talk. critical talk that's putting them down. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't have to be negative. It could just be confidential information that they entrusted to us, and we're blabbing it around. We took private stuff, and we're blabbing it to others. Proverbs 20, verse 19 says, A gossip betrays a confidence. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. Gossip wrecks relationships. You know, haven't you found that to be true in your, in your workplace or maybe among your, your school friends? See, gossip just destroys the whole atmosphere in which relationships flourish. You know, I, I could say that's even true in my workplace. I work for a church. And, and, and right now, you know, it's fair to say we're enjoying some high morale. We've got a hundred and some employees. And things are great. But I could look back over 30 years and see that there were some times when, when our atmosphere, there was disgruntlement, there was mistrust, there was negativity, and then something interesting would happen. A staff member would leave, would take a job someplace else, some other church go, and all of a sudden, the whole atmosphere improved. And it was then I discovered, now this didn't happen a lot, okay, but it was then I discovered the person who had left had been a gossip. I didn't know it at the time. And then you come to find out, well, you know what they were saying about other people behind their backs? Proverbs 26, verse 20 captures what I've just been describing. It says, without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. See, gossip wrecks relationships. It produces a quarrelsome environment. If you want to change the environment, get rid of the gossip. Why do we do it? So why do we gossip? Proverbs 18, verse 8 says, The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. Solomon says, listen, gossip is delicious. (laughs) It's like taking a great big bite of juicy steak. It's like fresh baked chocolate chip cookies coming out of the oven. It's like Lou Melnati's pizza, butter crust, if you can. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. It's almost lunchtime. (laughs) just taste it. We savor gossip. We love to serve gossip up to others. We slide into gossip so easily. Hear me. We slide into it so easily, we hardly even know when we're doing it. I think of a conversation I had some time ago with a good friend of mine. 
And I brought up a mutual acquaintance who wasn't there. And I began to share about this other person. And I was just, uh, you know, two or three sentences into what I had to say. And my friend looked me in the eye and he said, hey, Jim, is this something I need to hear? My, my, my initial reaction was I was indignant. Like, are you, are you insinuating that I'm gossiping? <laughs> the fact of the matter was, I was gossiping. I was gossiping. And it took his very perceptive question, is this something I need to hear? To stop me dead in my tracks. Now, if we want true friends, we need to avoid gossip. We need to avoid speaking gossip. Listen, we need to avoid listening to gossip. You know, don't listen to it. And change the conversation. If you can't change the conversation, walk away. See, if you enjoy listening, you say, well, I don't say it, but if you enjoy listening to others speak about somebody who's not there, who do you think they're gossiping about when you're not there? Just a thought, okay? Life-draining words, gossip. Number two, retorts. Retorts. Now, I'm talking about angry words, okay? You remember that scene in Home Alone? I'm talking about the original Home Alone because the others aren't worth watching. All right? Where, where uh, Macaulay Culkin, he plays the role of Kevin, and his parents have gone out of town and mistakenly left him behind, and he wanders into a church. It's Christmas Eve. And there's a children's choir that's rehearsing for the big program later that evening. Uh, but Kevin is sitting there all alone. And suddenly the back door opens and his neighbor walks in. It's this old scraggly guy. In fact, Kevin's brother had told him this guy's an axe murderer. So when he sits down next to Kevin, Kevin's terrified initially. But then he comes to find out this is a nice guy. And they began to talk. And uh, Kevin says, so what are you doing here? And the guy points to the choir. He says, well, you know, see that little girl up there second from the left? That's my granddaughter. And Kevin says, well, why are you at the dress rehearsal? Why, aren't, why don't you come to the service tonight with everybody else? And the guy said, well, I'm, I'm not welcome here. Which is when Kevin says the funniest line, I think, as a pastor in the whole movie. He goes, not welcome in church? Everybody's welcome in church. And, but the, the guy says to Kevin, he says, well, no, I'm not welcome because years ago my son, my grown son and I, had an argument, and it, it got bitter. And we said some really hurtful, angry things to each other. And now we don't talk to each other at all, haven't for years, and we're no longer welcome in each other's company. It sounds a lot what, what a couple of Proverbs say. One of the Proverbs, Proverbs 18, verse 19 says, a brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. You know, when we use angry words, you know, people retreat into their little fortress. Here's another verse that says something similar. Proverbs 17, verse 14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. Okay, a river's going to come, friends. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Angry words. I'm calling them retorts, and retorts include sarcasm, put-downs, accusations, zingers, name-calling. Angry retorts destroy friendships. Have you ever noticed how angry words have a way of escalating? 
So your friend says something to you that's, you know, it's got a bit of an edge to it. You're insulted. And so you say something similar back. You're, you respond with a retort, only your has, yours has a little more edge to it. You've intensified things a bit. And it begins to go back and forth, back and forth, and each time, each exchange, the temperature is rising until suddenly the gloves come off. And now you're saying things that you would, you would have never said initially, but you're worked up. You're both throwing punches. So how do we keep this sort of escalation from happening? Proverbs 15.1, this is one worth memorizing. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Instead of responding to a friend's retort by taking it up a notch, we deliberately take it down a notch or two. We deliberately lower the volume of our voice. We deliberately change the tone to something kinder. We deliberately avoid the use of inflammatory words, words we know are going to be grenades in the conversation. We deliberately refuse to exaggerate by saying things like, you never or you always. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Gentle answers not only preserve friendship, they keep us from behaving like fools. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, It's to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Proverbs 29, verse 11 says, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Are you known for your angry words? You're a fool, Proverbs says. Stop being a fool. Here's the third kind of life training words. Flattery. Now, at first mention, flattery doesn't sound as bad as the previous two. It doesn't sound like such a horrible offense, does it? I mean, isn't flattery just a little bit of praise taken to an extreme? You know, granted, our flattery is insincere, but it does no damage to the person who receives it. I mean, maybe they're not as smart or as beautiful or as wonderful as we tell them they are, but what's the harm in that? You know, what's the harm in saying your Instagram picture was awesome. You know, when we know we've seen a hundred Instagram pictures that day that, you know, we're better. What's the harm in saying those skinny jeans look so cool on you when we know they look ridiculous on them? You know, what, what's the harm in saying great game, even though we're thinking, but if you had played a little harder, we might have won the game? So what's the harm in flattery? No harm, no foul, Right? Proverbs 29, verse 5 says, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. You say, huh? What, is it, what does that mean? Well, it means that flattery is not innocent on our, our part. We typically use it to trap people in some way. As the proverb says, we're spreading nets for their feet. Trap people. Yeah, yeah, trap people. We may be trying to gain their affection or their approval, so we flatter them, ho hoping to trap them into liking us, or we need something from them, so we flatter them, hoping to trap them into giving us something we want. Flattery is manipulative. Okay, flattery is aimed at controlling another person's response, and we all know that instinctively. We all know there's something rotten in flattery, which is why we use derogatory expressions to talk about flattery. We call it uh, sucking up, Brown nosing, apple polishing, boot licking, 
sweet-talking, soft-soaping, laid it on thick. You get the idea. Flattery is not like genuine praise. You know, I had a couple of people in the Welcome Center after the last couple of services say, I wanted to say something nice to you about the sermon, but I can't. You know, that's, that's, okay. You misunderstand. <laughs> okay, flattery is not like genuine praise. When we give someone genuine praise, it's for their benefit. When we flatter somebody, it's for our benefit, even if the benefit is nothing more than we'd like to hear a little flattery in response. Okay, which means, if it's for our benefit, it's self-centeredness is what it is. And self-centeredness undermines any friendship. So it undermines the friendship. It also has the potential of harming the person we're flattering. Proverbs 26, verse 28 says, a flattering mouth works ruin. Now think about that. A flattering mouth works ruin. We can ruin the person we're flattering. You know, how so? Well, we, we can keep them with our flattery from taking an honest look at themselves and making changes that need to be made. We can flatter them into thinking they're on the right course of action when in reality they're taking a disastrous course of action. We can flatter them into thinking they're skilled at something that they're not really good at should stop doing that and do what they're really good at. So flattery leads to room. It's life-draining conversation. Gossip retorts flattery. Let me give you a fourth one. Dishonesty. Dishonesty. I have a, uh, a fair amount of musical training in my past. Piano, uh, trumpet, all the way through high school band, vocal music. And so I can detect if an instrumentalist or a soloist is somewhat out of tune. But I have a brother-in-law who's got a PhD in music. He plays a trumpet on occasion for the Pittsburgh Symphony. And, and he's got perfect pitch. And so he can detect when an instrumentalist or soloist is the tiniest bit out of tune. And it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to him. You know, tiny doesn't matter to me, but it matters to him. Now, this is an analogy because God is the same way when it comes to dishonesty. Okay, God can detect the tiniest bit of untruthfulness in us, and it bothers God. The scripture refers to God on several occasions as the God of all truth. The God of all truth. That's what he's known for, his character, truthfulness. Jesus claimed for himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the character God wants to see reflected in his children. Truthfulness. This is why one of the big ten commandments, commandment number nine, prohibits dishonesty. Okay, don't lie. God, Proverbs 12, verse 22, the Lord detests lying lips. God hates lying lips. So it's a good idea if we want to enjoy God's blessing on our lives to avoid dishonesty. The slightest bit. No lies. No half-truths. No exaggerated claims. No little white lies. No false promises. I had a friend at Harvard Law School years ago and he said, you know, they've taught us lawyers that we're not supposed to lie. However, they, they do say it's advantageous if you can strategically misrepresent the truth. I said, no, no strategic misrepresentations of the truth. 
Okay. No, no, no dishonesty. God frowns on dishonesty. He will see to it that any of his kiddos who lie will be disciplined for it. Proverbs 19, verse 5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished. Whoever pours out lies will not go free. Okay, if you've got a problem in this area, God's word says consequences, dire consequences are coming. Stop doing this. And the dishonesty seriously damages our relationship with God. But friends, it also undermines our friendships with others because friendship is built on trust. Friendship is built on trust. Proverbs 12, 22, I started the verse a moment ago. The Lord detests lying lips. It continues by saying, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. See, the opposite of dishonesty is trustworthiness. You ever have a friend lie to you? You ever had a friend lie to you? See, even after you forgave the dishonesty, my guess is it took you a long time to trust that person again. Because dishonesty removes everything from the, from the trust bank account. You know, probably the most blatant, most tragic example of the Bible of a friendship that was torpedoed by dishonesty is when Jesus was was betrayed. He was taken away into custody, arrested. And, and Peter, one of his best buds, was asked on three occasions that night, do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? You know this guy? And each time Peter said, no, never met him. Don't know anything about him. Three times lied, ball-faced. And when Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, you think, well, All's well that ends well. No, Jesus had to go back and confront Peter about his dishonesty. In fact, if you read through the Gospel of John, you come to the last chapter. One of the four biographies of Jesus, the entire last chapter, is dedicated to the account of Jesus restoring the friendship that Peter had broken through his dishonest betrayal. Wow, this is speech to stay away from. Gossip Retorts, flattery, dishonesty. If you're taking notes, you might want to just draw a circle around the one you think you perhaps struggle the most with. And if you're not sure but the person next to you knows you, just ask them. They'll tell you, okay? <laughs> Let's turn the corner. Let's get to life-giving words, okay? Proverbs 10, verse 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Life can come out of your, your mouth, friends. Proverbs 15, verse 4 says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life. Now, there are four kinds of words that will give life to our friends. Here's number one. Encouragement. Encouragement. Encouragement comes in a variety of flavors. So as you listen to the following Proverbs... You're not going to hear the word encouragement itself used, but you're going to hear what encouraging words accomplish. So I want you to note the verbs, okay, the action words in each of these Proverbs I'm about to read to you. Proverbs 10, verse 21, the lips of the righteous nourish many. Proverbs 11, 25, whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Proverbs 12, verse 18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12, verse 25, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. So what do encouraging words accomplish? Did you notice the action words, the verbs? 
are encouraging words nourish others. They refresh others. They bring healing. They cheer up. This is just what our friends need. You know, when we have conversations with friends, they're going to bring up discouraging things. You know, they're going to tell us about their overly demanding boss or about the sump pump that backed up in the middle of the storm last week or their, their migraine headaches or the latest conflict they're having with mom and dad or the, the losing streak of their favorite team. Have we ever noticed how much negativity there is in a typical conversation? And so we have an opportunity to bring a, a, a breath of fresh air. We have the opportunity to say something that is nourishing, that's refreshing, that brings healing, that cheers up. One of my favorite characters in the New Testament is a guy named Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was not his real name. His real name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname. The nickname means son of encouragement. How would you like people to give you that nickname? They would call you Mr. Encouragement, Ms. Encouragement. They see you coming out. There's a person who always brings an encouraging word. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Barnabas, but there are a couple of stories where, where Barnabas literally turns around the life of a friend through his encouraging words. I want to tell you one of those stories. It's a story about the Apostle Paul. Only the Apostle Paul wasn't always called the Apostle Paul. He was known as the Persecutor Paul. Before Paul surrendered his life to Christ... Paul hated Christ's followers. Paul persecuted them. Paul did his best to round them up, get them thrown into jail, killed if he could. And, and, and God, God has this wonderful sense of humor. The day comes when Paul surrenders his life to Christ. Paul becomes a Christ follower, becomes a believer. And so now he's looking for some fellowship with fellow believers. The only thing is nobody wants anything to do with Paul. No Christ follower wants to get near Paul. They don't trust him. Okay, they're sure that this whole conversion thing, it's phony. It's so Paul can worm his way into Christian circles and betray even more Christ followers. Nobody wants to touch Paul with a 10-foot pole, except Barnabas. Barnabas befriends Paul and with encouraging words. And he says, Paul, hang in there. And then he goes to his friends, fellow Christ followers, and he encourages them. Give this guy a try. Welcome him with open arms. I'm sure God's in this. And you know what happens. You know, that it works. Paul becomes the leader of the early Christian movement. Paul becomes a guy who writes a major portion of our New Testament. Why? What's the turnaround? It's a guy named Barnabas, son of encouragement who refuses to get caught up in the negative talk of others, and he spreads an encouraging word to his friends. You know, when, when we're with our friends, we need to think encouragement. When you're talking with your friend, think encouragement. You know, what could I say that would nourish? What could I say that would refresh you? What could I say that would bring healing, that would cheer up? You do that, and your friends will love having you around. Here's a second kind of life-giving words. Counsel. Counsel. Now, a, a brief disclaimer before I promote this idea of offering our friends counsel. Okay, some of us, you're going to have to self-diagnose here, all right? Some of us are far too quick to give others unsolicited advice. 
You know, some of us, when our friends or our family members, they tell us about a problem, we immediately tell them how to fix it. And they don't like that. Okay? So if your tendency is to say too much by way of counsel, please don't use the following Proverbs to justify your annoying habit. See, you need to offer less counsel, and the counsel you offer needs to conform to the guidelines I'm about to give you from Proverbs. Here are some Proverbs to consider, and as I read them to you, I'm going to accent a pair of words in each verse. So, so listen for the words that I emphasize, because those two words in each verse describe what good counsel sounds like. So Proverbs 15, verse 23. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Okay, apt and timely are the two words in this verse that describe good counsel. What do they tell us about good counsel? Well, it needs to be appropriate to the situation. See, good counsel is appropriate to the situation. It's apt. It's timely. What do I mean by appropriate to the situation? You imagine yourself going to the doctor. You're feeling bad. You're sitting in his examining room, and he says, well, tell me what's wrong. And you get like one or two sentences out of your mouth, and he goes, well, he pulls out a piece of paper, he scratches something on it, hands it to you. He says, here's a prescription. Take it to the drugstore. Uh, you'll be better in a week. You're indignant. You say, wait, wait, wait a second, doc. You know, you've prescribed without fully diagnosing. You haven't heard what I have to say. See, this is the temptation when it comes to offering others our counsel. The temptation is to jump in, begin describing before we've done the work of diagnosing. So we need to listen to the entire story. We need to ask clarifying questions. Only then will our counsel be apt and timely. Only then can we say exactly what the other person needs to hear. You get it? Good. Here's another verse. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Listen for the pair of words. The pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Now, the pair of words that describe good counsel in this verse are pleasantness and heartfelt. In other words, we watch the tone. Hear me. We, we, we watch the tone of the counsel we're offering. Is our tone pleasant? Is it heartfelt? You know, or are we coming across as strident, as demanding? Well, you should do this. You know, you, you should do that. You should, 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 should. Somebody told me some time ago, they said, people don't like to be should on. Yes. Now, don't, don't misquote me. I said S-H-O-U-L-D. Okay, people don't like to be should on. We, we want the tone of our counsel to be pleasant. And, and we want it to be heartfelt. In other words, not clinical, not cut and dry, not matter of fact. Your friends need to feel as if we care about them as people as we're offering them our counsel. One third and final verse about counsel. Listen for the pair of words. Proverbs 16, verse 23. The hearts of the wise make their words prudent and their lips promote instruction. Okay, if you want your counsel to be well received, if you want to promote instruction, then your words got to be wise and prudent. How can we be certain that the counsel we offer people is wise and prudent, that it's not foolish and ill-advised? 
You know, if we offer people counsel, which we're prone to do, it may not just be neutral, it may be damaging. How can we be assured that it's wise, that it's prudent? Is it built on principles from God's Word? You know, as you're talking to your friend and you're thinking about counsel, you're hearing them speak, you're asking yourself the question, what would God say to my friend in this situation? Not what is my knee-jerk reaction. If we say the first thing off the top of our head that responds to their story, you know, if it's a knee-jerk reaction, it's not going to be wise, it's not going to be prudent. If it comes from God's Word, which means we've got to get to know this book, we've got to saturate our lives with it, then there's a better chance it's going to be helpful, it's going to be good counsel, it's going to be wise and prudent. Here's a third kind of life-giving words. This one's going to surprise you. Rebuke. Okay. Sometimes we need to get in a friend's face. Sometimes we need to warn them. You know, what you're doing is not good. Sometimes a rebuke, although the concept may seem harsh, it's actually life-giving. Proverbs 15, verse 31 says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction, okay, life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Now, when we offer life-giving correction, our friend may not heed it, right? They, they may even resent it, but this proverb says that a rebuke can be life-giving. It could be life-giving. Do, do we ever say, I'm concerned that your smoking's going to kill you? You know, do we ever say, your anger, dude's getting out of control? Do we ever say, I sense that you're moving away from Christ? You used to have a close relationship with God. Do we ever say, you know, your world kind of revolves around money and stuff? Do we ever say, can I recommend that you and your wife or you and your husband check out a marriage counselor? Do we ever say hard things to our friends? We have so exalted the principle of tolerance in our culture today. This live and let live. Everybody has the right to do their own thing. Don't force your values on anybody else. It's impossible to rebuke a friend these days without feeling like a criminal. And I want to tell you, you're not a criminal. Not according to Proverbs. If you have a deep concern that your friend is wrecking their life or the lives of other people, then love requires you to speak up. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 say, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. That's a fabulous phrase there. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. In other words, sometimes you've got to say something that's initially going to hurt. Wounds. Sometimes you've got to be like a cancer doctor who takes out a scalpel and makes a cut because he knows that ultimately healing's going to come out of it. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Proverbs 28, verse 23 says, Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor. I've got to say, this doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's a sweet thing. Now, somewhere down the road, that person you, you rebuke, they circle back to you and they say, you know, when you, uh, when you corrected me, I didn't like it. In fact, I didn't like you when you did that. 
but it was just what I needed to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Life-giving words. Encouragement, counsel, rebuke. A fourth kind, questions. Questions. Sue and I have told you before, we like reading out loud to each other. So we're currently uh, in the middle of this novel, uh, best-selling novel, uh, called uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain. Not a Christian book, so if you read it and you don't like it, don't say Pastor Jim recommended it. So, uh, But it's a strange but moving story. It's strange because it's told from the perspective of a dog. Okay, the dog's name is Enzo, and uh, it's, a, it's a very intelligent dog. Its owner owners are a couple named Denny and Eve, a young couple been married for six years. Denny's a race car driver, and Eve is dying of a brain tumor. And when Denny first discovers that, he's sitting in his car in the parking lot of a hospital with his best friend, Mike. Enzo the dog is in the back seat observing this. And as Enzo watches, he's disappointed in Mike. He doesn't feel like Mike is a good friend because he's not listening to Denny. He's not drawing Denny out. In fact, this is, this is Enzo's observation. He says, I, I, I cannot speak, so I listen very well. I never interrupt. I never deflect the course of the conversation with a comment of my own. Now, people, if you pay attention to them, they change the direction of one another's conversation constantly. It's like having a passenger in your car who suddenly grabs the steering wheel and turns you down a side street. Learn to listen. I beg of you, pretend you're a dog like me and listen to other people. So says Enzo the dog. Okay, and Enzo's admonition resonates with something that King Solomon says. Proverbs 18, verse 2, he says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Okay, do you really want to understand your friend? You really want to get behind what they're saying? Or do you just want to hear the sound of your own voice? Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Well, that's one worth memorizing. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Do we interrupt our friends when they're talking to us? Like Enzo says, do we reach over and grab the steering wheel and turn the car down, down the side road, road we want to go? We take the conversation some other place, they say something, and, and we jump in and we say, oh, that's just like something that happened to me, and now we're telling my story instead of listening to their story. So here, here's a good test. The next time you walk away from a friend and you've been having a conversation, ask yourself the question, what did I learn about my friend? Okay, did I learn something about my friend in that conversation because of the questions I, I, I asked, or did they just learn about me. Now, Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite Proverbs. Solomon says, I want you to picture your friend like they're a deep well, okay? And at the bottom of that well, there is cool, refreshing water. It will delight you, but you got to draw it out. How do you draw it out? A bucket. What's the bucket? Good questions. Am I asking good questions? Am I learning about them, or is it just a case of them learning about me? Life-giving words. 
Now, as we draw things to a conclusion today, just a moment, our pastors at our four campuses are going to come and close in prayer. But here's something really important you need to hear. Okay, life-giving words, life-training words. You're going to go out this week. You're going to have opportunities to give one or the other. And I guarantee you will not be able to give life-giving words. You'll automatically gravitate toward life-draining words unless unless you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and the life-giving Spirit of God has come to live on the inside. We just finished a five-week series on the Holy Spirit and how when we trust Christ, okay, when you make that decision, you got to make a conscious, deliberate decision to surrender to Christ, to say, God, I know that my sins have kept you at arm's length in my life, but I understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He died to take the penalty, death, that my sins deserve. And so I surrender to him. I want his forgiveness. I want new life. I want the promised Holy Spirit whom Jesus said he would send to live in me once I surrender to him. If you'll do that, then the Holy Spirit of God will give you the will to choose life-giving words over life-draining words. See, just knowing the difference between the two is no guarantee that you'll employ the life-giving ones. Only if the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside can you appeal to him and say, oh, Spirit of God, I want to do the life-giving thing here. Will you be motivated and able to give life-giving words? So if you've never surrendered to Christ, that's what the people who got baptized today, that's what they're all declaring, that I've made that decision for myself. I belong to Christ. He belongs to me. He's my Savior. He's my King. If you've never made that decision, do it today. Now let me close in prayer and ask our campus pastors to close at their campuses. And as we're bowed before God, I just want to say, if you're a guest, you came to see someone get baptized today, I'd love to meet you. Just say hello. When I'm done praying, I'm going to be back in the Welcome Center, which is the glass-walled room at the back of our auditorium. And I would, I would love it if you'd come by and just say, hey, I came to see so-and-so get baptized. And uh, we got a bag of information about our church, if that would help you get to know us better. And on the, on the far side of the railings at the sides of our auditorium, on the far side of the railings are our team of prayers, and they'll be there for the next 15, 20 minutes. So if there's anything going on in your life for which you could use prayer, you need healing, physical healing, you need a job, you're going through some relational crisis, whatever it is, they're there for you. Okay, so uh, let me ask you to stand together with me for prayer. And there's a little bit of blessing wrapped into the prayer, so if you just want to put your hands out like this and receive it from God, May you fully surrender your life to Jesus. May the Holy Spirit of God come to live inside of you, the all-wise Spirit of God. May you have an appetite for God's Word, saturating your life with it so that you become a wise person. God wants to love you with this wisdom, and God wants you to be an attraction to the people in your lives who will look at you and say, what's behind this wisdom? May you be a light for Christ. May you be the one who says, it's not mine, it's come from God and his word. And Father, I just pray as we go into a world where there's a lot of foolishness, there's a lot of darkness because of the stupid things people do, may we go into this world as wise people. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everybody said, amen.